This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hey everyone, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How are you doing, Max? I'm great, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm making a big meal for my birthday tomorrow, so I'm going to be cooking for a lot of people. So I'm, I'm actually cooking like a, a, a lot already. So uh, yeah. a lot of things going on in my kitchen looks like a, you know like a, it's a, a complete disaster at the moment. But but I'm going to clean up as I go along, and uh, I got like <laughs> a five pans going, and uh, yeah, yeah. Big, uh, a lot of stuff going on. But apart from that, yeah, all good, all good. Well, uh, happy pre-birthday! I know I'm 24 hours too soon, but uh, <laughs> but thank <laughs> you, thank great. you. Well, let's let's have some fun then. Uh, who's who do we have on the 3D pod today to to enjoy your birthday with? Oh, okay, cool. Uh, well, it's Claire DeFazio, and Claire is from E3D, and uh, so E3D is well, it's a quite a unique company actually because on the desktop 3D printing thing, we've got tons of people trying to make software, trying to do their version of Thingiverse and all that kind of thing. But there were very few companies, especially in the beginning, who were doing kind of aftermarket accessories. And one of those companies uh, kind of really focused on kind of the most important part of the 3D printer, this whole this nozzle, the, the extruder uh, assembly, all that kind of part, and the feeding uh, as well. And one company really, really got a head start on that. Well, that was E3D. And it was a really simple head start, really, uh, making these brass nozzles that would just break and there's no not enough replacements for them. Uh, and uh, you know, Ultimaker and other companies weren't really interested in selling that. So they kind of got a head start through that. And then they kind of grew in developing all these really interesting outperforming type nozzles and many more other kind of uh, hot ends and other kind of you know parts of 3D printers. So so I think it was a really cool company and really interesting. And of course, now we're seeing 3D printing move into its next phase with like more professional printers, also cheaper desktop printers, also the whole Bamboo Labs thing. So yeah, also a very interesting time for E3D. So yeah, really, really cool. Uh, really happy to have uh, Claire here today. Welcome to show, Claire. Thank you very much. That was a, a very succinct summary of E3D in a nutshell. Okay, okay. Well, I, I've been using you guys for a ton, long, really long time, and I know a bunch of you guys as well for a really long time. So uh, it's difficult to get around you guys, actually. So, so, so <laughs> we're no, everywhere. No uh, so first, uh, so Claire, how did you get your start in 3D printing? How did you first come in contact with this technology? Kind of by accident, completely by accident. Um, my, my background is I was always the nerdy girl at school, if you like. Mm-hmm. And back in those days, I mean, I was going to say back in those days, I'm not that old, but, you know, in, in the 90s, there wasn't really, uh, I couldn't find a good fit for myself within engineering and technology. I couldn't, I couldn't see it. I couldn't picture it. My teachers kept telling me that's what I should do. I was the kid that watched Robot Wars while all of my friends were watching chick flicks. But um, so whilst that was my interest, I ended up doing all sorts of other things for a few years. I worked in management consultancy. Um, I studied psychology. I worked, I, I ended up in business development and marketing in various industries. And then in, I think it was 2011, maybe 2012, I came across um, a filament manufacturer that was based near me down in the Southwest of England. And they were advertising literally a part-time job managing managing their e-commerce store and max you might have heard of them um it was faberdashery 
I love oh, Haberdashery. I yeah. love Haberdashery. Oh, <laughs> such a shame. Yes. Yeah, we exactly. Haberdashery quite a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. We were going we to say exactly the same thing there, actually. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in so. fact, Max, I think in another life, you and I had a Byron burger together in, in London many you know, a long, long oh. time ago. <laughs> um, that's very conceivable. Um, <laughs> especially when we were working on our PCL variation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. Anyway, so so I was with them for a couple of years and I just instantly realized I'd found what I loved. 3D printing was a new technology. It was, um, you know, there was that, all the excitement at the time of the, the desktop printer on every, in everyone's office and everyone's home and just the kind of the, the myriad potential opportunities they were with that industry and with that technology. I, I, very, I just dove right in and got obsessed with it um, and was very lucky then to find um, a position in E3D a couple of years later. Um, but, but wait, before we go there, can we talk yeah. a little bit about Faberdashery? Because as you heard, Max and I are fans. Um, <laughs> for the people who didn't know, it was kind of like, there was a ton of people, well, the whole filming thing, how to get started, right? it got started with people um, kind of, uh, well, getting 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 the wrong idea of what the what the filament diameter stratasys was, and then looking online to find filament, and then only finding yeah. welding filament, and then making, buying exactly. welding filament from Chinese suppliers, right? These Chinese guys would then ship you a sample plus a FedEx cost. And that was like around 30 bucks a kilo. So everybody got used to paying 30 bucks a kilo in the yeah, beginning. Yeah, so stuff that didn't really print. But yeah, you know, exactly. Was, yeah. You know. Oh my God. So many fails from bad PLA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the filament didn't work well, but you didn't use a lot either. So you didn't mind how much you were paying because like uh, 80% of prints failed that you wouldn't print big things because it didn't make sense. Right. So when you, you look at really... it like that, it's amazing it ever got anywhere, isn't no, it? No, I'm, yeah, I'm no. daily, daily, I'm every day, I'm amazed that the desktop thing actually works. And we're selling millions of printers now because in the beginning it was horrible. And the thing was, there was this conspiracy as well that no one because it was open source and it was all techie you couldn't tell other people and i was like having like, like in whispers with people like look um like most of my prints fail and, like, yeah, mine too. <laughs> and we thought it was us right we thought we thought everyone else was doing this correctly and we were the morons right but anyway in that time like a bunch of like basically welding filament guys started shipping it from china there was these guys in uh what are they called again uh, these guys in New Zealand that were shipping it really early, oh, Diamond oh, Age. Diamond. Oh, yeah. yeah, I forgot about those guys. And he shipped filament for New Zealand because he was like the only guy in the world doing this that was actually dedicated 3D printing filament, at least when I was doing this stuff at like, I don't know, was so this he, like 10? They had the something? same background as Fabadashi, actually. Both, really? I can't remember the Diamond Age uh, guys. Diamond Age, yeah, it's yeah, like from the Neil Stevenson novel. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it? But yeah. he and Andrew Dent, who founded Fabadashi, they both originally worked with Adrian Boyer at Bath University. Ah. Yeah, they um, came from the same. <laughs> they did. It, it all originates down in in uh, in Bath in the UK. Um, okay, okay, that's cool. And they worked on developing or optimizing PLA for three D printing. Um, it's funny. Then, the the first time Fabadasher was ever described to me was yeah. right before we did our Kickstarter for the three D pen. Um, an ex MakerBot person who had moved over to Kickstarter was like, you need to call these guys. And I'm like, who are they? And he's like, they're like a boutique house for PLA filling. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Exactly. When I look back on it, it was completely nuts what we did, but we sold filament by the meter. We literally yeah. 
we metered it out. Andrew had designed this contraption for metering it. <laughs> we would sell it in these giant loose spools. Um, and the idea was it was a haberdashery of, of PLA. So we were, I think, the first company in the world to have the sheer volume of colours we had. We had 32 when most companies had red, white, black and orange. Um, and it was... And, and I would say it still is probably the, the best quality PLA that you could get on the market. It was, it was hands down. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Like Printed I like still have artists bug me because they want four of the whites that came from Fabadashri that we had. We had a pearlescent white, That's uh, right. a gray white. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, I need all of those whites. Give me That's those right. 10 whites. Um, Arctic white had Earl Grey. Yeah, Arctic is white, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was good quality PLA. Yeah, yeah. It's good, good stuff. Good um, stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you were there for this crazy growth time as well. How was what was that like? Uh it's yeah. It, gosh, where to start? It's been, it's been a journey. Uh, when I did start with e through d so that was maybe two years later there were four of us there was the the three founders or i don't know there were five of us there were the three founders there was um a chap called paul who joined the same week as me who was um in charge of um, shipping logistics and then there was me who and you know when there's four or five people in the business your job title isn't what you do you basically do everything and you assign a job title to whatever that might be um so i was i was marketing and logistics manager <laughs> soon soon worked out that logistics was not my forte um but yeah well, we we rapidly grew at that point we were i think at that time getting about 30 to 35 orders direct to our website each day um, we had two or three resellers over, gosh, even the first, the course of that first six months, uh, we, the, our market doubled in size. Um, I think one of my first jobs was to, <laughs> I was brought into a meeting when I was told that we were going to launch a new printer on Kickstarter in four weeks time. And could I create an entire Kickstarter campaign, the video, etc. I had a video production four weeks. beforehand. Yeah, four <laughs> weeks. Do you mind just Only knocking this campaign. together? Yeah, just, just <laughs> knocking her out. Yeah, it works. I managed to I managed to negotiate and get six weeks. Um, but you're literally That's six That's still six very weeks tight. Later. <laughs> <laughs> it was completely nuts. Um, so yeah, we launched this, this Kickstarter for the big box printer. Gosh, when was that? July 2015, um, which which went incredibly successfully. But it's not our core focus. We're a company that does hot ends and nozzles and extrusion systems and just sort of did a printer on the side just to see how it would fly. And how it flew was we had to recruit another 15 people to manage the program. But yeah, I mean, the, the journey from there to where we are now with... Um, I think at the moment we're somewhere between 50 and 60 full-time staff. Uh, and then we have temps and contractors, um, some some based uh, at the HQ in Childgrove. We work with some people remotely out in the States with contractors. Um, and that, it has been just, it's been nonstop. We've got a bit of a running joke that we always say that, you know, when things calms down, we will do this project or that project. 
<laughs> they still haven't calmed down yet. And I've been with this company for nine and a half years. I'm beginning to get the impression maybe it won't calm down. <laughs> and okay, the first time I heard of these guys was like, okay, so there were some people trying to turn nozzles using like really simple lathes, right? On I don't know, Alibaba and stuff, right? Or something similar to that. And these are the only, you guys are like the only people doing it in Europe and you were in the middle of nowhere. And it was literally like, two guys or three guys and they bought like a lathe and they'd moved to like the middle of nowhere and somewhere in the That's UK. Right. And why? <laughs> <laughs> why? Um, what, the, what happened was originally it was Sanjay um, Mortimer and Dave Lamb who they were actually both doing a PGC course, which is a kind of post-grad conversion course you do when you want to become a teacher. Um, so they were both studying to become technology teachers and obviously fascinated by 3D printing. And they actually went and met Adrian Boyer and oh, Jean-Marc, I think is his name, and picked up one of the really early models. Um, I think they ended up with a very early Huxley and a very early Mendel too. They've got the serial numbers on the bottom. They're, still, they're gathering dust in the E3D archives now. Um, and they started playing with those and obviously realized what everybody realized behind the scenes and wouldn't admit, which was that you can't really print with a 3D printer. <laughs> so being the types of people they were, they just started tinkering about with uh, improving the extrusion system. So, yeah, as you said, got a lathe. They lived on the Isle of Wight at the time, um, which is an island just off the south coast of the UK. You can only get to it by ferry or by a sailing boat. Um, Sounds like some kind of children's story. Oh, <laughs> Once, two gentlemen on the Isle of Wight. <laughs> I remember the first time I met Sanjay, I was like, and then he's like, you know, you're on the Isle of Wight? And I could not think of like the wor yeah. a worse place. Like, I guess you could do it on like an even more remote island. <laughs> I guess you could, yeah, it could be worse, but it could also be quite a lot better than the Isle of Wight. Yeah, it so, could be the Inner Hebrides or whatever, I don't know what, or something like yeah, one of these actually, other no, islands. That would be significantly worse. Would somebody, they were manufacturing on the Isle of Wight at that yeah, point? No? Yeah, they were literally then, just, they made a small batch. I think the first batch okay. is, the, the, the first release was maybe the V4 Hot End. So what everything up till then had been J heads, like um, like actual hot ends made of the peak polymer themselves or metal hot ends with PTFE lining, um, which, you know, as you know, has, has all kinds of issues. Um, and the, the J head would block all the time and was, was just not particularly reliable or effective. So they made uh, 20 something like that of these all metal v4 hot ends i think it was called and just put them on uh, maybe reddit or i don't you know it went on an online forum they announced what they'd done and they sold them within 24 hours so they were like all right maybe we've got something here let's make I a think few it was more. a reprap forum maybe because that was like it, really oh, hot back you're then right well. it, it would have been the reprap God, so long ago, I'd even forgotten it existed. But that's that's literally what it happened. So it was self-funded. They just invested the money in making bigger and bigger batches. Within a couple of months, a guy in America called Tim, who uh, makes the filastruder, which is a kind of, you can, you know, it, it munches up old filament and will extrude new filament for you. They're still in existence now. He, he called them up and asked if he could be the US reseller. And before you know it, they're, they're trying to both manage their first year as teachers in technology, both from different parts of the country at that point, employing Dave's parents to 
come down to uh, his bedroom <laughs> and pack yes. and ship hot ends and nozzles for them. Um, and that's when they realized, you know, maybe maybe this is a bit of a bigger thing and we should do something. Maybe it has legs as a business potentially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so they got back in touch with, with Josh. Josh had been studying mechatronics, mechanical engineering with Sanjay up at Newcastle University. Um, and he was working, I think he was in his first job in the nuclear industry. And they phoned him and said, just give up on the nuclear stuff, come and make nozzles with us. And that's what he did. That's, I like that. That's better than saying, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Sell sugar water for the rest of your life? The Steve Jobs <laughs> quote. I like, I like, give up the nuclear <laughs> stuff and come make hot ends with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and did you, did, did you join in the Isle of Wight time as well? or? No, I didn't. Although I did know them at the Isle of Wight time. Um, and again, one of the strange, my career has gone all, <laughs> in a sort of very varied path, but at this time in 2012, I had my own video production company. Um, we just we did small corporate videos um, and editing. And I also have a background of sailing. I used to do a lot of tour ships, sort of sail training, and I'd got back into it at this point. So I'd sailed over from the mainland with a, a group of teenagers. We were going to do a race around the island, and I messaged. Dave and said, oh, hey, I'm on the island. Do you guys want to come and meet up on the boat? They all loved sailing. So they did. They, they drove across the island, come and met, met me in uh, Yarmouth on this big old 100-year-old boat. And this is my first experience of, of meeting Sanjay. He just sort of jumped on the boat and said, oh, hey, you're at Fabinashri. You like 3D printing. Do you know about color mixing? And I was like, mm, yeah, I know it can't be done. <laughs> and <laughs> so he proceeds to get his phone out and just shows me this, I call it the magical mystery tour of polymers, but he, he just showed me like this working example of color mixing that they had running as a prototype back in the, the chicken shed, which was their office at the time. Um, oh, you know, half an hour, hour later, he's still talking about it. So that was, uh, that was my introduction to to him in particular, uh, his, gosh, his passion was absolutely infectious. Um, and the whole team were just such a joy to work with. Really, really nice, nice bunch of people. So, oh yeah, it was, it was very fortunate for me that they decided that shipping globally from an island was a really bad idea and they relocated up to Oxfordshire. And uh, that's, that's a point when I ended up joining them in 2015. Okay. So you're head of marketing management. Well, you're doing marketing managing for a company that's really loved at this point, right? And really yeah. popular and it's really niche. So it looks amazing, right? <laughs> but you're like, here, sit back, do nothing. But like you said, <laughs> you're you're going to be, you know, one day you're going to be sticking boxes. Next day you're going to be trying to like, you know, contact the lawyers for new contracts. So you're doing all this other kind of like firemen running around stuff, right? But also yeah. as a marketing person, you don't know who you're marketing to and where and, you know, how big this market is, anything, right? You don't know anything. Yeah, exactly. It was... There was a lot to learn. I, I, I kind of knew of the type of customers we had because I knew a lot about RepRap just from my time at Fabadashery. I'd been lucky enough to already have met Adrian Boyer um, and, and a few other kind of really early, early names in the industry, if you like. Um, but yeah, it was... It was a very steep learning curve, not just getting to know our customer type and what kind of, you know, what voice the E3D brand should have. 
how we relate to our customers, which is very unique compared to, you know, <laughs> pharmaceuticals or anything else. Any mature industry, for example, has a very, very different way of working. And ours was very much on the ground. You're talking to makers, you're talking to community members. But they were equally as, as passionate about making as we all were at the company too. So that was that was the easy bit, really. It was It was the rest of it, which is how to market to our resellers and how to support our resellers in marketing our brand um, and our products to their end users. Did, did you find yourself having to kind of redefine how marketing works on some level for because it's such a different audience? Or did you find that the pre-existing tools could work, you just had to apply them properly? I th- I'd say we learned as we went. A, a nice... Fair. A nice modern way of putting it is growth hacking. <laughs> growth hacking. <laughs> growth hacking. <laughs> Let's call it that. But, you know, try something that doesn't work. You try something else. Right. Um, but it was at the time, Sanjay, Josh, and Dave were kind of the personalities of the brand too. So a large amount of the marketing was, you know, making sure that they got out there, that they were still talking to people. They were the the voice and the face of the company. So I I was very lucky. I was working with a brand that was already popular um, and with a group of personalities that were very much loved. So I I can't say it was a hard job. I loved every minute of it. Okay, that's super cool. And then, and what was it like when you're uh, when you're scaling like that? It's kind of difficult, right? Do you hire the right people? Do you outsource things? How did you make decisions like that? That has been, uh, I guess, the the biggest learning curve, the biggest challenge for us over the years has been how to scale um, sensibly whilst retaining um, our culture. So our, our culture and the core values of E3D is absolutely critical to us. And we, um, we've we ended up working with a, to, I don't want to sound too corporate, but we use a management structure called the EOS system, which, oh gosh, I think it stands for something terribly cheesy for like the entrepreneurial operating system. In fact, it does stand oh, for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. It sounds very much... <laughs> Sounds very much like a local council go gaga over this, but yeah, go on, go on. The idea behind it in principle is that you operate around like a visionary leadership um, and the operating system allows that visionary leadership to go and do their visionary things without having to get too bogged down in the day-to-day running of a business so it's really effective for a, a company like E3D where you've got these kind of creative inventors right at the top of the company. What a lot, a lot of companies really struggle with as they grow is the people coming up with the ideas don't get to come up with those ideas because they're too busy, you know, looking at the finances and ticking boxes and filling out paperwork. Um, and that was something we really we worked hard to avoid happening. So we set up a, a management structure that allowed Sanjay and Josh to be free to create and get back in the business, get back working on the technologies rather than, uh, you know, waving their arms about and, and orchestrating things. I guess that's the, the kind of summary of how the system works. But a really critical part of it is the core values of the business. 
and our core values. Let me see if I can remember them. Oh, <laughs> that's always a challenge. <laughs> um, Growth-minded is is uh, one of our most critical ones. So both growth-minded as individuals, but as a company, we want to grow. Uh, we don't want to stay static. We don't want to stay continuing what we are doing on a day-to-day basis. And that's particularly critical in FDM 3D printing because that market, as you know, is, it didn't even exist 10, 15 years ago and has been growing exponentially. So making sure we stay ahead of the curve is really important. Team E3D, that's the next one. Got, okay, got two out of four. Um, and that's all about, you know, it's, it's not about the individual, it's about the group of people, uh, making sure you're there for each other. Um, delivery, making sure that we deliver on our promises. And I really don't remember number four. <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. we won't tell yeah. anyone. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. You should probably That's just right. drop it at this point. Like, yeah, we, we've got three core values. <laughs> yeah, you have three core values exactly. <laughs> but that has been—it's a—it's been a stabilizing thing to have those core values at the basis of everything we do. Because every now and again, every quarter, we can sit back and just say, you know, are we still on track? Are we still like, are we still doing what we wanted, what we set out to do in the first place? Have we got the right people on board? Are we recruiting based on these core values or are we messing up here somewhere? And sometimes we have to redirect ourselves a bit, but you know, you wouldn't redirect if you didn't have those core values in the first place. I think it's fascinating that you guys embraced something that gets so often lost as companies grow where you said like we were started by these creative people and we want them to continue creating. So let's formulate the structure of the company around that, <laughs> that they should still be creating, as you say, and not directing. That's, that's great. I mean, I'm going to actually go look up the EOS system because it's <laughs> better than what I'm currently doing. <laughs> it does. It works that. really well for us, but uh, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I get it. It's not for every company. And it, uh, do you, do you guys give up opportunities sometimes in order to maintain that culture? And, uh, and is that worth it? I guess we, I wouldn't say we've given up opportunities for the culture, but another part of, of this um, system, I guess, but also of any company is making sure that we stick to our, our niche and our overall goal as a business. Our goal is to change the way humanity manufactures goods um, which we always pre- preface with, yes, it's a very lofty goal, and we sound like we sound like we're all very big and important about ourselves. But it's not; we're not changing the way humanity manufactures goods ourselves, but the industry is and will do. And we're just starting to see—you know—it's the tip of the iceberg at the moment. We're starting to see more application-specific printing happening, manufacturing happening in a whole different way. Um, decentralization of manufacturers is really beginning to happen. And uh, I I guess what we're going to see in the next 10 years, I would suspect one can't even imagine what it's going to look like in 10, 20 years time. So being a part of that and supporting other companies and our end users um, in that, in that journey is uh, what we exist for. And then I guess our niche is is the extrusion systems. And that's where I guess we sometimes have got to the point now where we will we will turn down opportunities if it doesn't fit into our core niche. If it's not extrusion system specific, which is you know where we're arguably the FDM 
global experts in. Um, and if it's not progressing the way that manufacturing happens, it might be something that we end up turning down. Okay. And then the, the other thing I think is also you, you're always, even now you're kind of in some sense, you're the big dog in like some things like some applications or were for a while. Um, you know, you've always been kind of that scrappy kind of thing. You've always had that kind of scrappy thing. You've never really splashed around a lot of money or tried, you know what I mean? You've never been very shiny and like, look at us, you know? <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. No, but, I, yeah, I think it always, but yeah. That's just the type of people that, that run this company. Like, we're, we're not here to make a big splash um, about ourselves. It's not. It's, we're not on an ego trip. We're on a journey to improve 3D printing. And we are lucky enough that we're a well-known brand. Our business structure has changed um, from several years ago where we were primarily an, an aftermarket product. We now work very closely with a lot, if not most of the major printer brands out there. And we find that those building those personal relationships on a personal level is is better than spending £100,000 on a massive fancy stand. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's kind of what it's it was. It's such what a I'm pretty stand, guys. I'm yeah, just exactly. Yeah. It's a really pretty stand. <laughs> yeah. and, and talk us a little bit through this, because you did, well, you did actually kind of start quite early with just offering nozzles to certain you know, companies that used your nozzles in their bills, right? and some of them came out to be quite big. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so so these relationships, I think, were really important, right? But you, you said, yeah, you were primarily aftermarket, but you got started really early with some some players that turned out to be very, very huge, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. I'm trying to think who the, the first OEM was. I, think that, I reckon the first was actually probably Lullspot um, that we had a, an early working relationship with um, where we persuaded them to move away from their hexagon hot end. Um, to E3D parts, and I mean, as as well as we launched the the V6 in in 2015, which was open source, um, that also started to become copied, cloned, left, right, and center. So there were a large number of printers which were not working directly with us, but were were using our innovations, using our designs on their their printers, and in a way that in itself worked to grow our brand because <laughs> you had a lot of people going onto online forums saying, oh my God, this crap hot end, what the hell is wrong with it? Um, and then our supporters would say, well, you probably need to just replace that with a genuine one and send them a link to E3D and then, you know, the rest is history. So the, the growth and clones actually really helped the, the growth in our genuine business quite a lot and really got the brand out there far more than any fancy stands. In fact, we didn't even have any fancy stands. We didn't go to any <laughs> trade shows back then. Is, is the majority of your business now supplying hot ends to the printer manufacturers or is it, is it split between, you know, replacement um, nozzles and whatnot? <laughs> I, it's, it's split. I'd say maybe, only about 40, sometimes it fluctuates, but about 40% of our business is direct to manufacturers now. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's a nice mix, actually, a, that you're not overly dependent on one side of that, so to speak. But Yeah, exactly. Well, we've got, obviously, we sell directly on our own web store um, and through Amazon, but we've got 30 high volume 
resellers globally and another 190 um, smaller resellers. So there's obviously a large amount of volume that goes through all of them. And then yeah, working with some of the big players, I think you were probably alluding to Prusa early on. Prusa I was, had, actually. Yeah. <laughs> they had their own... Um, their own version of their hot end and the Mark II, I believe. Um, and then when they, they moved over to the Mark III, in fact, no, I think even Mark II, they moved it over to E3D, the V6 eventually, um, and stuck with us through the whole uh, MK3 series, which is fantastic. Really uh, a joy to work with them. Uh, Joe is just one of the nicest people in the industry, um, and we're lucky enough to call him a friend as well. Um, so it's, it's been exciting working with them and seeing their growth journey. They've grown <laughs> significantly bigger than us, but at the same kind of uh, same kind of rate, I guess, and experiencing the same struggles at the same time as us. So it kind of feels like we've grown up together. <laughs> and now, even now, with their them uh, Mark IV and their XL, obviously we we worked with them closely alongside them with with development of the Prusa nozzle for both of those printers um, and still supplying them now. I think the wonderful thing, of course, about Prusa as well, they're maniacal about quality assurance and stuff like this. They do oh absolutely God, they everything. Are. They're crazy, 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 and really, really good about it. And they're crazy about doing – they're crazily vertically integrated to a point that it doesn't really um, make sense, but they will outsource if it makes sense to them. Uh, but, you know, like for example, they, when, they, when they started with the filament, when they started with the filament market, the way they did this and the professionality and the diameters they were getting, the quality they were getting and the pricing they were able to get just meant that they were just like, you know, they just moved like kind of an all conquering move into that, into that market. I think, yeah, I think it's just a really formidable company. It's a really interesting company. I know. I, I, I don't know if you've been on a, a tour there. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. have. Yeah. So you, you've seen, I mean, the, as you say, the, the level of quality control there is, it's just absolutely outstanding and the organization that goes into that um it's it's an absolute joy to see it actually but <laughs> sometimes our, our engineering team might argue about that we used to um during the development of the prusa nozzle uh, michael prusa decided to invest in an x-ray machine and my god <laughs> x-ray everything and send it back to us and go, look this tiny little gap on the inside of such and such <laughs> it, it certainly developed made the development process that much longer <laughs> now we could see inside everything um oh, good yeah but they're, they're, but also prusa does not seem to have apart from like a cult of personality thing does not seem to have any kind of management structure as far as i can tell there's one spanish guy who runs everything, <laughs> everything that joseph thing. doesn't do and i forgot his name he's great and trying and to think everything he- Trying yeah. to think who you're talking about. Uh, he runs like everything that the that, that Joseph doesn't do, right? Yeah. Absolutely every single like thing, like from from tours to taxes and stuff like this. Everything else seems chaos, but it somehow works. <laughs> and it's all in one building. And I was like, you should not do this all in one building. Like as in the extrude filament, design the printer, manufacture it, do this giant print farm all in one building. It's like it's like guys, no, 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 not good, not good. I mean, it's stunning, is it? as well as developing other things in the background. You know, we we only yeah. see the tip of the iceberg of what's on the market at the moment. They have all sorts of all sorts of things going on that may or may not come to market. As as do E3D, I guess. Um, but now I've seen, um, I've been over there. Obviously, I go over fairly regularly, and actually, I, you should go again. There's there's a fairly 
impressive management structure okay, that okay. sort of sprung oh, okay, okay. from last nowhere. Time I was there, exciting. Last time I was there, it was like it was chaos. I was like, what? How does this work? <laughs> How does this work? Chaos, yeah, chaos, organized. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I didn't get it. It was too big to work like that. Anyway, so uh, so you guys also, how do you scale manufacturing? Because like a lovely thing, I always there's always these things online about scaling, and it's always these stupid startups that are scaling their little eyeball eyeball tiredness engine you know scaling manufacturing is really hard because you know the perfect supplier for you or the perfect machine is not going to work for the next stage and then whatever you do in the next stage isn't going to work for the stage after that and then you know you're going to be somebody's biggest supplier is going to almost get destroyed if you lose them or you know if you leave the, the next level of suppliers let's say when you get to ten thousand parts all of a sudden you know you're, you're one of the smaller guys and, and nobody listens to you so how do you deal with stuff like that Wow, you've just described <laughs> everything that we experience. It's, yeah, the scaling has been, uh, not just scaling the business, but scaling manufacture has been um, the steepest of learning curves for us. And we've made mistakes. Um, as people know, like we've tried to think of an example of something that we've launched. I guess, like, even back back when we, we launched Hamera, and I think this was, gosh, 2018, 2019, and that was that's one of our, that's in fact, I think the most powerful extruder that, that we have on the market at the moment. We released that and we tested at the, you know, 100 unit scale and we tested at the 600 unit scale and manufacturing worked at that level. And then we went to market and, you know, with, with 10 times that volume and then suddenly everything didn't work anymore. And we had to really go back to the drawing board and learn to scale up in a much more slowly, elegant fashion. Was it the specific of the manufacturing or were you not actually catching it and it was still getting out into the world? It was the the manufacturing app. It, it just didn't work at scale. Um, without that, that's in. frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> Especially after you do 500 units. And you're slow. like, oh, if we could do 500, we should be able to do 10,000. So. Exactly, right? <laughs> but apparently not. <laughs> Um, that that was a, a big learning curve for us and one that <laughs> touch wood um, I think we have now come out the other side of but you know we when we used to launch a product we would make 200 of them and launch them and they would sell and then we'd make some more and that was fine because we were small there were 15 people we were agile and we could do these things and then when you're launching something uh 10 or 20 or 30 times that volume it becomes a whole different ball game and that's been it's difficult when you know that a product is ready in quotes and you just want to get it out there to the market and let people use it there's still a long process of ramping up production and ensuring that we're doing it right at, at, at the new scales that we're addressing that we're that we're working with I'm trying to think of another example, but there probably isn't one that I can. That I can I, I, it, often people don't, I think, realize the general public just how difficult it is to make physical goods and all the little things that can happen in there. <laughs> <is> quite extensive. <laughs> yeah. Even something as dumb as, you know, the wire supplier gave you the wrong gauge wire, and now you have to wait like two weeks to, to get the replacement wire. Or something of yeah, that nature. Yeah, exactly. I guess one of the ways around it is that we we do a lot of prototyping or small batch manufacture under our own roof now. Uh, we've got a Swiss lathe and various other um, toys for the engineering team to play with. 
Um, and we will make, you know, small batches of up to 2000 units in house ourselves. So you guys go out, out of house to do the larger scale stuff. Like you do contract manufacturing. Yeah, we work with, we've got two or three UK manufacturers that we work with, um, electronics, et cetera, largely comes from Asia because, uh, because that's it's where they come from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just where they are. Just where they are. <laughs> it, it's also you're also like the, I think a unique thing is you didn't you had a kind of you were founded and had enough success to survive, and mm. then not enough to really thrive in the beginning. I think I think it was kind of there was still a kind of eating out of tin cans kind of period, right? When when yeah. they, when they kind of grew. R- ramen so. profitable. Ramen yeah, yeah. profitable. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what we always called ourselves was ramen profitable. <laughs> Yeah. Afford like, ramen as as soup. yeah as long as we don't pay ourselves anything it's fine exactly uh, yeah. <laughs> um but anyway so that, that i think that's really good uh, because if they would have been more profitable i don't think i think you would have got the biggest stand you know what i mean i think you would have gone uh and i think so that i think really helped later on um but also it gave you the time to refine things and stuff like that uh but also like you didn't have vcs or anything that like you're also the financing ended up you know, you could say things about culture and actually mean them you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have we've been very, very lucky to not have any external financing and um, be a little bit more flexible with what we want to do. It's um, a real joy to not have externals telling you, you know, hire <laughs> four hundred people because you need to grow at that rate and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I can see advantages to that too. Like, it's it would be exciting to just go right, you know, here's X million go forth and make money right conquer (laughs) yeah but but growing organically is infinitely more satisfying and just having that you know for for the founders for josh and dave um having complete control over what the business does and what the strategy is is uh, you know i bet i I personally think it leads to a healthier business at the end of the day Mm. because when you have external investment their goal is to try and ramp you as fast as possible um, so that they can then sell it because that's their end goal. Yeah. Not to necessarily build the best company in the world. Whereas no, founders, you're a bet out of 10 it. bets. Exactly. Right? And you're a bet out of 10 <laughs> bets and they only expect one of those 10 bets to actually pay off. <laughs> so they don't but, care. Yeah. but Claire, you did mention the other two founders, like the third one, of course, that's a really kind of a tragic story. Like that's about Sandry was to me, the real, like he was a super charismatic, super crazy, really funny guy. It was like, like you said, larger than life, but that's actually, I don't know, he was like, you know, <laughs> 700 times larger than life. It was just real a hoot, right? And he really <laughs> drove that business. And, you know, he was very charismatic and really funny and also the right type of personality, I think, to, at the time, to really, you know, be nerdy enough. And, and, and one hand, he knew what he was talking about, which is wonderful. And he wasn't too arrogant about it. So he was always like looking for better solutions. So he was a wonderful person. But after, sadly, he, he he passed away, right? So that was that's something I think we need to talk about a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. He was, well, I could describe him the other day as a <laughs> chaotic genius. Um, he was absolutely the, the face of E3D, certainly to the community, you know, rep rap festivals. Um he was the guy that everybody wanted to talk to and not just that, but he wanted to talk to everybody else about their inventions, their passions, their problems, um, 3d printed related problems usually. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he, he absolutely lived and breathed hot ends 
and nozzles and extrusion that was his his life's work and passion um yeah we lost him in the end of november 2021 so just over two years ago um which was an enormous shock for all of us as his friends and colleagues um and you know for his family too of course it was an enormous shock all around i mean i can't i can't be more proud of how the whole team came together and looked after each other in the you know the weeks and months after we lost him um but yeah it was certainly an emotional it was it was a real whack um to us all and there was a lot of a lot of sitting and thinking about gosh what do we do next yeah and especially because we're a small team like 25 people at the time something like that right or something like that if i, I can remember no correctly. we we were still we were a good 50 at this okay, okay. by this that's still a big loss though obviously with it was, yeah it was an order. enormous loss um because you know he was just as big a character around around e3d as he was online <laughs> um mm-hmm. so yeah there's that kind of you know personal that the absence of Sanjay's uh, funny expressions and the jokes and the hour-long explanations about the minutiae of nozzles and coatings and flow rates. Um, that, that kind of, you know, the storytelling Sanjay that we used to um, love at, at E3D, that's, we, we really do miss that. But we probably... We were very well set up, as I talked about this kind of this organizational structure that we had in place. We had that in place for a really good reason, and it was because somebody like Sanjay didn't didn't do structure. Um, he he really did need to sit in the corner and invent stuff. Whilst he was sitting in the corner inventing things and dipping in and out of customer conversations, the business itself ran fairly independently and had a management team, a very competent management team already in place. Um, And we got stronger together as a result of of the loss of him. We were very lucky. Everybody dug down um, and got involved. Um, A really important part for us was was setting up a foundation um, in Sanjay's honour just at the beginning of COVID, uh, when we all had too much time on our hands, um, he, he decided to go and, and seek, well, not to seek treatment, but find out more about himself, if you like. And the result of that was his, he was diagnosed quite late in life with ADHD. He found that an enormous relief to understand <laughs> why he felt different and how he um, communicated differently, how he thought differently. And he was pretty clear that that would have helped him to know about, to understand more about himself earlier in life. Um, and, and I guess one of one of the ways we decided to try and, and recognize the contribution that he's given to the industry uh, is to continue helping people like him. So the, this charity is set up to help not just ADHD, but anyone and any young people um, who are neurodiverse who might, for example, struggle in mainstream education, which I suspect is the vast majority of those who are neurodiverse. And and we're there to to provide them support, getting into engineering, into making, 
into things that that really work for their their way of the, you know, the way their brains work. So that that's finally being granted charity status just um, three four months ago now. What's uh, the name of the charity? It's called the Sanjay Mortimer Foundation, the SMF. Um, and it's it's run by a wonderful lady called Tula Bradshaw, who used to actually work closely with Sanjay at E3D in the last sort of 18 months before we lost him. So she took up the reins and, and has built the, the charity up from scratch. Um, E3D makes donations to that, but it's entirely separate from E3D as a company. It's run entirely separately because it's a charity and you have to. Um, but we do everything we can to support that now. Um, we offer internships. Uh, we have close relationships with other manufacturers and brands in the industry where hopefully we can offer internships to um, to other SMF stars who are the, the, the people that we're supporting through that. We give them printers, we give them training sessions, all sorts of things. So it's a real honor to be able to do something in his name. Um, and I guess the culmination of that also was was Smurf running our own Rep Rap Festival in um, in Oxford at the beginning of December last year, which was again it was a fundraiser for for the charity, but um, also just you know we really wanted to get people together that were like minded individuals, celebrate the history of FDM printing, where we've come from, where we are now. Um, and the kind of the mad inventions that might take us to the ne- the next step in the industry. That's great. Well, yeah, it's absolutely lovely, uh, Claire. Thank you so much for, for sharing this, and and thank you for so so much for being on our podcast today. Oh, thank you. I hope I haven't waffled too much. <laughs> no, no, no. It's been great. And I think I think it's wonderful that you guys are like uh, still a really strong business and a really strong company. And uh, yeah, I really love what you guys bring to the industry. So absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh, and uh, Max, thank you uh, for being here as well today. Oh, thank you, Joris, for hosting. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.